Well, good morning once again. Uh, for those of you who do not know, I am Pastor uh, Nathan McKendry. I'm the student pastor here at First Baptist Wataga, uh, and I am filling in this morning. If you would, as many of you know, uh, continue to be praying for Dennis, our senior pastor. He is out this morning because, and, and really, he was out all week. Uh, last uh, Sunday night at the, the very end of the church picnic, he got a phone call that let him know that his mother had passed away. And so he was uh, dealing with that all week and, and planning the funeral, and, and he was, in fact, preaching that funeral. And although he was excited as I talked to him about it, he enjoyed the opportunity to preach the gospel uh, to, to friends and family at that funeral. Uh, it is certainly still an emotional time for him. And so thankfully, our, our deacons asked him to go ahead and take a few more days off and get some rest and, and take a chance to grieve. And so that is where he is at this morning, uh, and that is why you have me instead. Uh, and so this morning, I want to I open up as we continue our, our series in, in Resurrected. Um, I'm going to open with a story, and I will finish it. You have my word, okay? <laughs> uh, I, I promise. <laughs> this, this, this is actually a story about my brother, Jonathan. He was just up here uh, playing this little box right here. And uh, in fact, Last week, we, we gave him a certificate of license, so he's going into the ministry. In fact, some of you don't know, that was exciting for me because six years ago to the day, I had been licensed. And so he got licensed on the exact same day. It, it's a miracle because it landed on a Sunday again, which has to take about six or seven years for that to work anyway. But Jonathan, when he was uh, born, because again, Senior Sunday also just happened. You've seen a lot of Jonathan lately, so you should know who I'm talking about. The the first picture we put up for him was amazing. It was this big, chubby, cameras like right here face. It was this awesome baby photo of Jonathan. Um, but the, back, back when he was born, I was told, I was only like five years old, okay? And I was told by my parents, hey, you're going to get a little brother. And I'm like, oh, sweet, right? I had two sisters, and I loved my PlayStation 2. And so I was super excited because if I'm getting a brother, that means I'm getting a player too. All right. And so I was excited. I was pumped. I was ready for it. You see, my sisters would occasionally play with me, but they weren't into video games like I was. They wanted to go play with their Barbies or they, they had other games they liked to play that were boring to me, you know. And so we, you know, they, they wouldn't always play with me for very long, but a brother is different, right? Brother's not a sister. A brother would like everything that I like just the same way that I like it. He would play with me as long as I wanted him to play with me, right? We were going to have this kind of bond, this fellowship, right? This, this duplication is what I was hoping for. And you can imagine the day when my parents introduced me to my little baby brother for the first time. I had never felt such disappointment in my whole life. <laughs> it was clear to me, and I'm, I'm five, y'all, at the time, right? So I don't care that there's this beautiful life that's brought into the world. Wonderful. I was five. I didn't care. I cared that his, his hands were clearly too small to hold the controller. And, and that's saying something. He was a large baby, was he not? He was huge, and yet he still... He, he didn't have the brain capacity yet. It was going to take time. I was going to have to teach this kid everything I knew in order for him to be a good brother. And so that took years of training. I, I think we've accomplished it, though, right, Jonathan? We, we get along great nowadays. But I was looking forward to that fellowship with him. But the truth is that fellowship took 
time. It took years of waiting before we were able to achieve a, a player two on my on my place. By then, the PlayStation Three was out, so I, he didn't even play with me on the PlayStation Two. But but as we continue in this series, we titled "Resurrected." We've been looking at the responses to the resurrection uh, of Christ, and and. It, you may have guessed it. Today, we're going to look at fellowship. Uh, and in fact, j- just to give you a, a quick preview or, or, or previously, right? So far, we started this series. We looked at Matthew 28, okay? First thing we discovered is that the resurrection of, of Christ requires a response. We have to do something about it. We can't just ignore it. Then we continue to look at Matthew 28. We learned that there's responses like worship and evangelism. Uh, two weeks ago, Dennis... Uh, Acts in the early church, and he started with Acts 2.42, and he talked about prayer. Palmer last week did a great job. He used that same launch point, but he talked about discipleship. And the verse that I'm referring to is 2.42, and it talked about what the early believers were devoted to. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. So you can see how we've kind of taken some different branches here. And today, well, while Palmer took the branch of discipleship and Dennis the branch of prayer, I'm going to dig into fellowship today. We're going to look at what it means to hold things in common together. And so our text is fun today because we've got two passages, okay? We're going to be in Acts 2 today, and we're going to be in Acts 4 today, okay? So you can get ready. It's only going to be about one page turn, so you'll be all right. But the reason we're, we're looking at the text this way today is as I, as I approached it to look at fellowship, right after Dennis stopped in Acts 2.42, we enter about four more verses that specifically talks about the disciples holding things in common together. It talks about this, this fellowship that they've got. And then he, the, the author, Luke, he, he takes some time and he starts this, this long story, which ultimately leads into this example of prayer. And then Dennis preached on that, right? And so right after that is our second passage today, where Luke kind of reminds us of what he said in Acts chapter 2 again, before he gives us two more examples. And after that, he gives us a good example and a bad example. And so we're going to dig into all of that this morning and see what we can we can learn. So if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 2, we'll start in verse 42 this morning. It says this, starting in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. And every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So that's that first passage. And mind you, we, we take a break now as we, we get some, some, I mean, you really should read the book of Acts. There's drama and action, and we have all of this, and then we lead into this, this passage on prayer. And right after that, Luke kind of reminds us of the situation of the early Christians. In chapter 4, verse 32, it says this, Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. But instead, they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. And Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
All right. So now that we've read those two passages where we're going to be dealing with closely this morning, let me just make things simple for you. I'm just going to lay out the direction that we're going this morning so that you know where we're going. I'm simply going to ask that we pursue two questions this morning, okay? And we'll start with one, and it'll lead us into the other, and the other will take most of the rest of the morning away, and we'll be done, all right? So the first question that, that, that I want to look at, because we're, we're leading up to two examples, right? We're leading up to a story about Barnabas, who we just read in that last verse. Right after that, we go into a section about a man named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira. They're a bad example, right? Whereas Barnabas came and gave the, his stuff and, and gave to the church so that they could take care of each other. Ananias and Sapphira came, sold their, their, their house, and took part of that money that they received and then gave it to the church and said, this is everything, right? And they lied about it. And so that's our bad example. And they, they're, in fact, the Lord just strikes them dead. And, and that, as you can imagine, unrattles everybody in the church. Everyone in the church gets a little afraid, and you think twice before lying about the Holy Spirit, right? So the Lord did that. And no, no stones were thrown. No swords were pulled. The Lord just made them drop dead. And so that's, that's our bad example with a clear bad ending. And then Barnabas, who, if you were with us a few weeks ago, we're going through this growth group series uh, back then through, through Acts and the missionary journeys. You saw all about Barnabas back then. So Barnabas becomes this key figure in the church. So that first question that I'm referring to is, why should we become like Barnabas and not Ananias or, or even somewhere in between? Why should we become like Barnabas and not Ananias? I think Ananias, I don't want to talk long about him because I, I think the passage makes it clear why we don't want to become like Ananias. We don't want the Lord to strike us dead, okay? We don't want things like that happen. We don't want to lie about the Holy Spirit. It, really, the way of Ananias led to this way of broken relationships. I, clearly, a broken relationship with the Holy Spirit. Clearly, a broken relationship with the church. And I would argue that he failed his wife in this matter as well. See, they took his his him in and his wife at two separate times. And they asked them, is this the amount of money that you were given for the house? And they both answered the same lie. And both of them, the Lord struck dead. See, I think Ananias committed the, uh, the same sin we see Adam commit in the garden, right? We always like to give Eve grief because she was the first one to eat the fruit. And in and, and later years, I've noticed, we've started to recognize Adam was there the whole time, <laughs> right? Adam was supposed to step in and say, no, 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 God said we shouldn't. You shouldn't eat this fruit. Instead, Adam watched Eve eat the fruit and then gladly participated in it with her. Adam, before he, he failed by disobeying God to eat the fruit, he just failed to protect his wife, right? And so here, I think Ananias, I think ultimately much of the responsibility falls on him. For my fellow husbands out there, I think when we take the way of Ananias, we will fail our marriages as well. But you're not here to listen to why not to take the way of Ananias. Like I said, the passage lays it out. I think it's clear. We don't want the way of Ananias, but why not somewhere in between? Why do we have to take the way of Barnabas? I don't have to spend much time on that either, Matthew covered that for me as he read from Ephesians 4 and talked about as Christians were called to grow. I thought, well, that was my argument. Thank you, Matthew. I appreciate it. That was completely uh, my argument because as good Bible-believing Christians out there, you should believe that you're called to grow because we just read the scripture where it called us to grow. But if, if that's not enough for you, I'll offer you only one more. There's a clear connection in these passages, okay? There's a verse in each of the passages that makes it clear that the gospel 
was at play here. Remember in, in Acts 2, the very last thing I read in that chapter was, and the Lord added to their number daily, right? The Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The way of Barnabas, the way of taking care of each other, of being good to each other and taking fellowship seriously, that way, the way of Barnabas clearly leads to the Lord blessing us with salvations. The Lord grows the church that way. And there's some, there's some regular old human logic for that. And then there's just simply, I think we please the Lord and the Lord blesses us. So as good Bible-believing Christians who are aware of your original mission, which is to make Christ known, hopefully that's also enough for you to be convinced that the way of Barnabas, I think, is certainly the way to go here. And so the rest of the sermon, I want to answer our second question, which is how do we become a Barnabas and not an Ananias. How do we take the way of Barnabas and leave Ananias here behind? And ultimately, I think it, it's our perceptions that, that will decide whether or not we take one way or the other, okay? Uh, so let me give you a little bit of context here. When it talks about them holding things in common, we saw that in the passage, right? Holding things in common. To give you some context here, this happened as need arose, okay? So I don't want you to think that that... Becoming a Christian back then meant that everyone sold everything they had, you know, and then brought all the money and put it here. It even says something like that in the passage. If you look at the Greek, it's this word, as much as, and I won't get, I, as Jacob Banks would call me out for Greeking out. I won't do that to you this morning, but, but, but I will tell you that the idea is kind of a, a, um, a hyperbole, right? Like, it, it, it basically, almost everybody sold their houses. We'll see in the passage that they broke bread from house to house. Clearly not everyone sold their houses. We, we have no evidence to say that this was a mandate to be part of the church or to be a Christian. You had to sell all your stuff. That wasn't the case. It was the case that as need would arise, as people would discover that there was need among them, they would do what they need to help the person, right? So they would give money to help that. And what would happen is, I'm out of money to help. I have this property. I'm going to sell it, right? I'm going to liquidate my assets and then continue to help, continue to serve, continue to give to the need. And so as need arose, these early Christians were very careful to take care of these needs. We have a, a, a similar thing going on here at First Baptist Watauga that I, I want to take some time to tell you about this morning that many of you may not even know about. And this is, this is what we call the, the Hope Fund. The Hope Fund is kind of burst out of this idea that we see in this passage of taking care of each other. And so... Um, I didn't know too much about it, uh, but it, it seemed to fit the passage really well. Dennis had mentioned it before he, he left uh, town for the week. And so I called Dennis Surratt, our chairman of Deacons. I said, tell me the story. What happened? What, how did this fund get created? Because the truth is, the Lord's been blessing us, if y'all haven't noticed. Last two years, the Lord has been blessing us financially. The Lord has been growing us, uh, not only in, in some of your spiritual walks, but also in, in numbers. We're seeing discipleships uh, completed. We're, we're seeing uh, the young adult ministry in particular has blown up, and we've seen added numbers there. And so my point being that there's some new, new people out there that you may not have known about this, especially some of you young adults who are new probably don't know about this hope fund. So I got, I got Dennis Ratt to, to fill me in, okay? And this is, this is designed, this fund is designed to, for, for two things, really to take care of people in the community and to take care of each other, people in the church, right? So people in the area, people in here, people who, who are church members. 
That was the idea, and it was nicknamed by some of the deacons God's Fund because they didn't want to saddle it with a bunch of rules. And so they really just came down to, uh, to, to one rule, really, which is that two deacons, any two deacons need to agree on any given case, on any given need, on whether or not to, to try to use something from the fund to help them. And, and if it's not two deacons, you can use one deacon and one staff member. And that's really all there was to it. And that was the commitment they made. So early on, when this commitment had just been made by the church to do this, and there was only just, as you can imagine, these funds take time to grow. There's only a few hundred dollars in the fund at the time. And, and, and Dennis told me that the church decided that there was this couple in the church that was in need. They were, they were having a baby, but there were some complications. And so the baby was going to have to go into the, the, or they were still pregnant. So they went into the hospital to, to take care of these complications because they wanted the baby to be born healthy. And that, that was what was at stake. And the church committed to pay this. Here's the problem. Like I said, there's only a few hundred dollars in the fund at the time. And hospital bills are pretty big. There's thousands and thousands of dollars that the church has just committed itself to. So you can imagine the sweat. <laughs> As you get nervous, you're like, what are we going to do? Is the church going to give? Are, are we going to take care of this? We committed to it, but we were committed to it. And so the church continued to, to commit themselves to it, not knowing how they were going to pay for it. And the hospital found out. So what the hospital does, they find out what our church was doing, and they decided to just wipe the bill, which I had not really heard of that before. But the, the hospital just wipes the bill. They told the doctor what they were doing, and the doctor wiped his bill. And so all of a sudden, it became quite manageable, as you can see. And there's, there's story after story of things like this involving the Hope Fund, involving other uh, uh, campaigns we've had, right, to, to raise giving for a particular purpose. And so just, just go ask some deacons. They will tell you. If you pick the right one, they'll tell you for like an hour and a half. So you'll get some good stories out of these, it, and maybe you just need encouragement, go ask about those stories. Those will encourage you, certainly. Um, but I also tell you about that just to make you aware of that, because like I said, there's many new people in here that don't know about that. When you, you know, we, we believe as Christians that we want to, to offer some kind of regular uh, tithe or offering, right, our regular giving that Palmer told you about how to do it earlier. We go online. If you go online, we... <laughs> We have this wonderful thing where you click the next steps button, you go to give your, uh, your offering, and then it gives you like a million options for what you can give to, <laughs> right? Because there's, there's the general fund, which we all kind of use, and then there's all these other options. One of those options is the hope fund. And so that's how you can find it. That's why it's there. I'll let the Lord deal with you on whether or not you're supposed to give to that. Uh, that that's not my purpose here this morning. But I want you to know about that. That's one way here we're doing a good job of that. So everyone pat yourself on the back right? Good job. We're, we're taking this mandate seriously. And that's, that's the goal this morning as we look into this, is to take the way of Barnabas seriously. But I think part of what's at play here, we have to pay careful attention to verse 32. In chapter 2, or, or 4, excuse me, uh, verse 32, it said that nobody claimed any of their possessions as their own. That's the attitude here. Nobody claimed any possessions of their own. See, the way of Ananias was this fake and authentic way. He's really, what he's doing is he's probably living out this Roman culture. Roman culture is all about status, right? Much like today in America. <laughs> it's all about status. So even giving is a way of drawing attention to oneself, raising your status in the eyes of others. I think that's probably what Ananias was attempting here. Not really sac uh, sacrificial, self-sacrificial giving. He was just trying to invest 
is giving, if you can imagine that. And so for him, I think it was way more about that. But the way of Barnabas has this different attitude. You see, the, the first thing I want to tell you about taking the way of Barnabas this morning is that we have to change our perception of our possessions. We have to change our possession or our perception of our possessions. Let me tell you about my father-in-law, Coleman. When I asked his permission to marry his daughter and then shortly after became engaged to her, he started offering me all kinds of, of things. He, he's a bit of a collector. He collects things like saxophones and bicycles. He loves these things. He goes to pawn shops, finds them, and then we'll get a good deal for him and then fix them up. And so that he, he cares about these collections. But when I became engaged to his daughter, he started offering me things like this. He offered me a kayak. He offered me a couple bicycles. He offered me some saxophones. And I was thinking, what is this? A reverse dowry? What is happening? Why is he offering this? And, and, and I began to learn something about Coleman. And over time, I learned more because later he offered a bike to my brother. And I'm like, he's not even marrying your daughter. What, what's going on? And I realized that the way that he, he has, I don't know if he's noticed this, I haven't talked to him about it, but his attitude towards his stuff is really this like, my stuff is like the family stuff. It's like in-house. So, you know, it, uh, loan a bike to Jonathan because he's Nathan's brother. And if I ever need that bike back, I'm sure I can get it back. If I need it, I'll get it, right? I'll, I'll give you these saxophones. If, if I ever want us to all play a giant saxophone, you know, a group together, I'll make it happen. You know, which is probably interesting for Jeremy, you to know wherever you went. <laughs> so you'd love Coleman. You should, I'll introduce you next time. Uh, but that's, that's his attitude, this kind of attitude that our, my possessions are really just in the family. Well, that's the attitude the early Christians had. It's my possessions aren't my own. They're God's, and therefore they're to be used for God's family. They're to be used in the early Christians. So they changed their perception of their possessions. Secondly, they changed their perceptions of property. We have to do that too. We have to change how we look at our property. If you look at chapter 2, verse 46, it says that they broke bread from house to house. Remember, that's, that's some of that evidence I was telling you about, that not everyone sold their houses because they met in houses. See, the, the early Christians, they were a very diverse group of people, as, as a, a Christian group ought to be, right? We're, we weren't paying attention to that. So it was just a, this diverse group of people, various ethnicities, various economic ranges, and so you had, you had poor Christians, you had rich Christians, and the richer Christians had houses. Some of them had big houses. So instead of selling their property, many of them would just use it. They would just open their doors, and they would say, come on in, we can have worship here this week, we can, we can celebrate. When it says breaking of bread, they're, they're really probably referring to communion. They would take the Lord's Supper together, right? And so those who didn't sell their houses opened their houses up together so that they could worship together. They could use it for the fellowship of the believers. So earlier this year, in fact, I was able to, to buy my first home, which is a miracle just being able to say that sentence in this market. If you know anything about the housing market right now, it's not a good time to buy. It's really, really not. As a first-time home buyer, really, really bad time. Uh, but, but this is, you know, the cards we were dealt. And as I began to, and my wife and I both really began to lose hope that we were going to get into a house when a miracle occurred. The Lord spoke into the life of a fellow believer and, and asked them to consider selling it to us. And so they told us, hey, you, you can come look at our house and, and we'd be willing to sell it to you. And we were like, of course we'll come look at the house, you know? And we've, when we got down to business, we had to say numbers. They, I didn't tell them this, but 
they said kind of the exact number I needed them to say. If it went any higher, I was going to be like, I can't. I'm sorry. That was the best offer that we would ever get because we're the ones throwing down offers, right? But it was, it was this miracle because the Lord had put it in their heart that this really wasn't their home. It was, it belonged to God and they, they wanted to take care of fellow believers. And in this case, it meant just selling that, right? Selling that and allowing us that opportunity. And so one thing the Lord made clear to me as, as, as all of this is happening is I just kind of felt the Lord give me this impression that now, Nathan, I've given you a home. I've made it clear that it's me it's coming from, not you. I'm like, Lord, I hope you didn't mess up the market just to teach me this. You know? <laughs> but the Lord made clear to me, Nathan, I expect you to use that home for my kingdom. Right? And so that's, that's what we're called to do. We're expected to use our homes. We, it's part of the reason every, every year, uh, again, I'm a youth pastor, so Disciple Now is going to be coming around eventually next year. And, and oftentimes we have host homes, Right? What, what a better beautiful picture than that. Christians, church members opening up their homes to let a bunch of middle school boys run around in your home. That is sacrifice, right? That is, that's what we're talking about, though, that they had changed their perception of not only what they owned, but also their property, you see? And so the early Christians used it accordingly. Third, we must change our perception of fellowship, Okay. The word for fellowship used in Acts 2.42, it's this famous word now. It's called, it's a Greek word, koinonia. It's actually the only time it's used in this uh, book. It's used all throughout the New Testament. The koinonia has grown in popularity uh, lately, but it means fellowship. It means to hold things in common with, to share, to participate in with, okay? This is the kind of word we see. And then and Luke kind of offers that word and then goes on to really define it by showing their behavior. But this is a, is a fellowship which, which ignores social class, okay? It, it comes before social class. It, it just ignores it kind of blatantly. So if you can think about in Roman culture where everything's about status, it's strange for people of different status to just be sharing meals together and, and hanging out with one another. You know, this it, is, is kind of like, if you were to, if you can picture yourself, you know, a, a big uh, government official, you know, maybe even the president coming in like to your Thanksgiving uh, meal at your house and sitting at the kids' table. Some of you would find great amusement in that, you know. It, but it's that kind of ignoring social class. So if you want to practice this, I encourage you this Thanksgiving, go sit at the kids' table. That'll change your world, okay? I've been stuck there for my whole life. Can I promote? <laughs> Mom will never let me promote. Um, but think about sharing meals with people, too. Sharing meals is, is always so different. Sharing meals is actually something that's very intimate to do with somebody. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. I, uh, the first meal I ever made for my, my wife back when we were dating, the first meal I ever cooked for her was spaghetti. Okay? In my defense, I was a college student. That was the only meal I knew how to cook for her. So I cooked for her some spaghetti, and I didn't realize until we sat down to eat what I had done. I've got this messy meal in front of you. My beard was longer at the time, so I've got like a napkin in this hand, and I'm like eating when she's not looking, you know, like, you know, trying to, to not make this disgusting mess. And then when we're done eating, and again, if you've ever like gone over to somebody's house for dinner, you may have noticed this. You're done eating. You sit there on the couch. You chit-chat, and then like your stomach starts settling, so it starts making weird noises. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Why am I even eating with her? This is disgusting. I'm probably sounding disgusting, you know, because 
when we share meals with people, that's kind of just what happens. That's the nature of sharing meals. You see, sharing meals is intimate. You can become friends with somebody if you can share a meal with them. That's why we do things like the church picnic last week, where we all hang out together. We bring food. We say, hey, I've made this this awesome macaroni that was advertised from the pulpit. Here it is. You know, It was amazing. So, so that's that's part of that fellowship is just eating together from house to house. And fellowship leads to compassion. You see, when we hang out with each other, we begin to care more about each other. That's when you really get to find out stories about people. And you get to find out some fun stories, some sad stories. You get to find out about some, some needs that are in that person's life that need to be met. And it's, tell you what, it's much harder to not do anything about somebody's needs if you're really good friends with them and you have to look them in the eyes when they're expressing this to you, right? So fellowship leads us to compassion. It leads us to caring more and helps us take care of each other, helps us hold things in common. It changes our perception of fellowship. Lastly, we must change our perception of the future, and this is, this is what I think is the most important part of this passage. I want to remind you in chapter 2, verse 47, and then again in, in chapter 4, verse 33, we see the Lord adding to their number, right? And then we see that the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord. There was still evangelism present. There was still the gospel. You see, the gospel was central to their fellowship. It was key. It was foundational. It was, that was the most important thing, the gospel. When we take care of each other and keep the gospel central, the Lord begins to bless us by adding to us. And the early Christians had this fervor and the focus on the eternal kingdom of God and anticipation for Christ's return. Part of that is because back then when Jesus had, you know, for us, Jesus ascended to heaven and gave us the Great Commission 2,000 years ago. For them, it was like two weeks ago, right? It was, it had just happened. And so when Jesus said, I'm coming back, they took that Seriously, 2,000 years later, we've lost a lot of that fervor, a lot of that belief. We have a tendency to, to believe there's always more time. I've, I've told the, the students in, 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 on Wednesday nights this before that, that the reason we always struggle to believe that there may not be a tomorrow is because up until now, we've always had tomorrow. It's always come. It's always been right on time. The Lord's not come back. But we've been promised that the Lord has come back, and I'd, I'd, I'd wager a bet that if we had this perception that the Lord was coming back next week, we'd have the greatest revival ever seen this week. Right? If we could capture that fervor again, if we would believe, right, if we'd focus on the future, which is the eternal kingdom of God, that would change everything. That would certainly enable us to take care of each other because suddenly saving up for the newest PlayStation isn't as important as taking care of my brother or sister in Christ is making sure they have enough food today, right? And so we begin to change our perception of the future, and that begins to make things different for us. And so we're not going to be able to take the way of Barnabas if the gospel is not central to our lives. But before you can take the way of Barnabas, you must know the way of Jesus, because that's what Barnabas was doing. His way was simply following Jesus, and so that's what the way of Barnabas is. And so because of that, I just want you to know this this morning. I'm just going to share with you briefly the gospel. Okay, the gospel is this. God created us. We sinned. We rebelled against him. 
Each of us has that sin. The cost of that sin is, is death and eternal separation from God, right? We've rebelled against him. It's only right we don't get to live with him. We kind of made that decision, right? That's what sin is. That's what it does. But Jesus, Jesus, the son of God, comes down from heaven. He lives a life perfect. He died in our place. He willingly takes that sin to the cross, the eternal perfect sacrifice. And then he rises again. On the third day, Jesus is resurrected, defeats death and sin, offers us eternal life and freedom from sin to anyone who would simply enter into a relationship with him, to anyone who would follow him in church. If you haven't done that, if there's anyone in here who hasn't done that, you can do that today. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.